we always grew up, those of us that understand the rapture and things like that, we talk about the trumpet sound and, and hearing the, the trumpet and, and put a lot of emphasis on that trumpet, you know. And the Bible doesn't actually say too much about that, uh, but it don't take much for church folk. <laughs> we'll fill in the blanks. Don't worry about it, Jesus. We, we, we'll fill it in. We'll make movies about the trumpet sound and stuff. And the Lord asked me a very simple question some time ago. He said, how are you going to hear it? And I said, uh, well, the angel's going to blow the trumpet, and we're going to hear it. He said, how? I said, well, he said, you're going to hear it with your ears? He said, have you ever heard me with your ears before? Have you ever heard an angel say anything with your ears? Not too many Christians today have ever heard the audible voice of God or any angelic creature or any supernatural anything happen with their natural ears. He said, what makes you think you're going to hear that with your ears? He said, how do you hear everything else when I have something to say to you? I said, well, I hear it in my spirit. He said, well, if your spirit is not tuned to my voice, you might not hear that trumpet. <laughs> I said, wow, I never thought of that. I don't know why we thought the trumpet was going to be natural. Like, everybody going to hear the trumpet. The Bible don't say that. There's a whole lot of things happening in the spirit that you don't know if you're not sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit and sensitive to what's going on in the spirit realm. So just as a note, you might want to develop your sensitivity to what's going on in the spirit. Because if you think you're going to hear a natural trumpet in the sky somewhere, and that's what you're waiting on, when the Lord ain't communicated with his people in that way for 2,000 years, You know, that's not, that's not really my lesson, but I say it that just to say we need to be more spiritually conscious, not spooky, because that's not spiritual. Spiritual means to be led by God, sensitive to his voice, but you develop that through fellowship. Everything, you develop it through fellowship. Go to, and I moved this podium out of the way. I'm going to use some of y'all tonight, but I ain't going to tell you who until I need you. So, sorry. Go to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to start there. I'm going to try to get all my scripture out of the way first. Now, who, who has been doing their uh, Bible reading? I know we all have. But uh, my assumption would be that by now, you've gotten out of Genesis. <laughs> That's going to be my assumption. My assumption is that we've all gotten at least through the end of Exodus, because you're going to need that. I'm going to be jumping around a little bit. Tonight, if I had to give this uh, a title, my original title don't really work no more, so I'm going to title this lesson, The Faith That Creates. And... I might change it midway through, so don't, don't hold to that yet. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, we know this story. We, that's, this Bible reading thing was the most brilliant assignment we've been given in a long time because it familiarizes everybody, it puts us all on the same page. With, it makes it so much easier to teach things because we've all done the homework. You know, as a teacher, we love it when our students do the homework. Because then we can go to the next thing. We ain't got to explain to Johnny in the back. On page 12, chapter 3, we talked about, see, we got to keep doing that. So thank you all for being faithful to the assignment. 
chapter 12 of Genesis, verse 1, this is when God calls Abram, who will later be Abraham. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of that country, and from that kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, curse him that curseth thee, and in thee you shall all families of the earth be blessed. Verse 4, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. And Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed. Underline, if you underline anything, verse 4, Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. Just make a note of that. That's going to come back to us. Let me get my notes out. See, I messed up and didn't keep my bookmark. But that's all right. Because it's right here. Just about done with this book. Okay, now go to Genesis chapter 15. We're still in Genesis. Go to Genesis chapter 15. I'm going to just hold both books like that. How about that? Verse 1. This is some, some things have happened between chapter 12 and chapter 15. He's had some, Abram's had some experiences, and God returns to Abram in a vision. And these things, after these things, the word of the Lord, if you underline anything, underline the word of the Lord, came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and this steward of my house, Eliezer of Damascus, he is the steward of my house, meaning he's going to inherit everything I have when I die. And Abram said, Behold, to me you have given no seed, and one born in my house is my heir. And behold, underline this, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be your heir, but he that shall come forth out of their own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars. Look at the stars. If you be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And Abram believed in the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him for righteousness. All right? You with me so far? Now go to Exodus chapter 2. I'm going to take you on a little journey. We're going to paint the picture. We're going to put all the pieces down first, then I'll explain everything. Go to Exodus chapter 2. We know this part of This is the birth of Moses. I'll start at verse 1 and... Because some of it's preliminary, so as you turn, you'll get there. Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. And there went a man of the house of Levi and took to wife a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived. When they say of the house of Levi, that means of his tribe. It doesn't mean he married his sister. They were just of the same tribe. And the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him, that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. Wouldn't it be nice to know your kids would be good from birth? That'd be real nice instead of having to wait for a while. And when, she could no, <laughs> and when she could not longer hide him, she took him an ark, she took for him an ark of bulrushes, daubed it with slime and with pitch, and put the child therein, and she laid it in the flags by the river's brink. And his sister stood afar off to watch what would be done unto him. So when she saw this, you know, he's three months old, he's getting loud, he's getting to that point where you can't hide him anymore. Pharaoh had made a decree to kill all the Israelite sons. She had a son. She didn't want him to die. That makes sense. So she hid him. She hid him for three months. 
then she couldn't hide him any longer because he was getting too noisy. So she made an ark, and an ark is simply just a box that's protective of something precious inside. You had the Ark of the Covenant, you know, that was a box to protect the contents of the box. Noah built an ark. God told Noah to build an ark. That's a box. You put what you want to protect inside the box. You seal the box up. This is another ark that she built, put Moses in it. She covered it in what I would call slime and pitch, which is just tar designed to make it watertight because she's going to sit it in the river. She don't want it to sink. So it makes it watertight so she can put them and hide them in the river. Verse 5, and the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river, and her maidens walked along by the river's side. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. And when she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the baby wept, and she had compassion on him and said, this is one of those Hebrew children that were ordered to be dead. But she had compassion on him, so instead of turning him over to Pharaoh to be killed, she held on to him. God is doing a thing to preserve his life. Then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter. Now, now Moses' sister is talking to Pharaoh's daughter. She knows that's her little baby brother in there. So, but she's a servant. She's going to talk to Pharaoh's daughter. And she says, shall I go and call to thee a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. And the daughter went and got her mama, Moses' mother, to nurse Moses, so that the mother could have more time with her son. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take the child away, nurse it for thee, and I will pay you for it. So now the mother's getting paid to nurse her own child. And the woman took the child and nursed it. That's how God does. And the child grew, and she brought him into Pharaoh's daughter, and he became the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He became her son, and she called his name Moses. And she said, because I drew him out of the water. So now he's being raised as the grandson of Pharaoh. They know he's a Hebrew. That wasn't the secret. But because Pharaoh's daughter loved him, Pharaoh couldn't kill him. So he's protected, even though his Hebrew lineage is not hidden. You know, that old Ten Commandments movie, they lied. They made it look like that nobody knew he was a Hebrew. They knew he was a Hebrew. But Pharaoh, you know how daughters are. They can get whatever they want out of their daddy. I don't care that you pass a decree. You're not killing this one. This one's mine. That's what happened. <laughs> so, you know, they got to colorize things for Hollywood, make the story more interesting. But the Bible's interesting enough. Okay? So, Moses is raised as an Egyptian. I want you to keep that in mind. That's going to come back. Now go to Exodus chapter 3. Now, in order to really tell this story completely, I'd have to read the whole chapter, but I'm not going to do that, so I'm just going to summarize the important points because it's going to take chapter 3 and chapter 4. Moses saves the life of one of his fellow Hebrews, and, by, and he kills an Egyptian in the process. So he flees for his life because he doesn't want Pharaoh to kill him out of retribution. He's an adult now. He runs off. He finds the wells of Midian. He, Jethro is the priest of Midian. He's the, the leader of that tribe, the Midianites. And they are kindred to his people, the Hebrews. He falls in love with one of his daughters, marries a daughter, becomes Jethro's son-in-law. 
and he decides to take a position as the keeper of Jethro's flocks. So he's watching over Jethro's flocks, and he's learning how to shepherd. That's an important skill set, but what God's getting ready to call him to do, he's got to learn how to guide sheep through the wilderness, that very same wilderness to that very same mountain. That's a skill set that he's developing in the home of his father-in-law. So verse 1 of chapter 3 talks about that. Verse 2 said, The angel of the Lord appeared unto Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burnt with fire, but the bush was not consumed. So this is a divine fire. An angel of the Lord, a messenger of the Lord, has taken and covered this bush in fire. And it's a spectacle that Moses sees, and Moses becomes curious about it. So he draws nigh unto it. A voice comes out of the bush and says, take off your shoes because the place you're standing is now holy ground. Don't track your dirt into this place. And when Moses drew near, verse 5, or say verse 6, moreover he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And then the Lord calls Moses. I'm going to skip through a little bit. Verse 10, God calls Moses. He says, come down, therefore, and I will send you unto Pharaoh, that you may bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said unto God, who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, and God said to Moses, certainly I will be with you, and this shall be a, a token unto you that I have sent you. When you have brought them forth out of Egypt, you shall serve me upon this mountain. But listen to God's response. God said, certainly, I will be with you. That was God's initial response to Moses. I will be with you. Because Moses said, who am I to go to Pharaoh? Remember, Moses was raised in Pharaoh's house. He knows the Egyptian culture. He was raised in it. He knows how powerful Pharaoh is. He knows how frightening Pharaoh can be. He is not a person who's not aware of what he's getting into. But God tells Moses, I will be with you. So Moses asked God another question. Moses says, when I come unto the children of Israel, and they say unto me, and I say unto them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they shall say to me, what is his name? You have to understand something. All the Egyptian gods had names. At this point, the Hebrews had been slaves to the Egyptians for 400 plus years. They had forgotten their culture. And they never knew God's name. He was just the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But their God, they need their God to have a name. So God tells Moses his name. He said, this is the name you will give them. And, you know, the old King James Version has I am that I am in all caps. Uh, without getting too deep into that, that's not actually what he said. Uh, the name of God when written in Hebrew is sacred. So this is the translation of what he said, because they never wrote God's name in totality, because they didn't, you weren't allowed to say it. So to prevent people from saying it, they would, they would, they would write it without the vowels, so that, it was so that it was unpronounceable, because one of the commandments is you should not take the name of God in vain. So you were not allowed to write down the name of God. So. In Hebrew, vowels are not written in between the consonants. When you write Hebrew, the consonant sounds are written, and then the vowel sounds that complete the word are written underneath it. 
And so if you just put the consonants down and you don't add the symbol, there's symbols that tell you that, that would be vowels in our language. Without those symbols, you can't say the words. They're just noises. So when they wrote this in the Hebrew, they would leave the vowels out so that the name was unpronounceable. That way, they never took the risk of saying it. And that's why we have certain variations of God's name today, because people put the vowels back in, and they kind of, anyway. That's a whole history to that. But that's why it's written that way. He says, that's the name you give them. And God said unto Moses, verse 15, you shall say unto the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, Jacob has sent me, and this is my name unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. Chapter 4, they're having this long conversation. And Moses says in chapter one, verse 1 of chapter 4, But behold, they won't believe me, nor hearken unto my voice, but they will say that the Lord has not appeared unto me. Now he's issuing another challenge to God. They're not going to believe me. Because they can't see you, and they're going to call me crazy. They're going to say that I'm just, I'm spouting off. I don't know what I'm talking about. And the Lord said unto him, what is that in your hand? He said, it's a rod. He said, cast it on the ground. He cast it on the ground. It became a serpent. So God performed a miracle for Moses' benefit. Not for the Egyptians' benefit, for Moses' benefit. Because it's just Moses and God right here. Ain't no Egyptians around. First time that rod became a serpent, it was not to impress the Egyptians. It was to impress Moses. And the Lord said, put forth thy hand, take it by the tail, he put it forth, and it, it became a rod again. And the Lord said unto him further, I'm skipping through to verse 6, put your hand into your bosom. He put it into his bosom, when he took it out, it was leprous, white as snow. Then he put it back, became whole again. That's another miracle. That's another sign for Moses' benefit. There's no Egyptians there. This is for Moses. And keep that in mind. Now go to verse 10. Moses says to the Lord, my Lord, I'm not eloquent. I don't talk good. I'm from the country. Neither heretofore, nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant. But I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. Some have translated that as he stuttered. He had a stammer. And the Lord said unto him, who hath made man's mouth? Or who maketh the dumb or the deaf or the seeing or the blind? Have not I made them all? Now go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach thee what thou shalt say. Yet again, God doubles down. I will be with you. That's not enough for Moses. Verse 14. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, the verse 14. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Now, he was not angry when he first talk, started talking to Moses. But after talking to Moses for a little while, God is starting to get a little hot under the collar. Because Moses just won't go. And he said, Aaron's a better speaker than you. He's your brother. I'll send him. And to summarize the rest of that chapter, he says, for the sake of the Egyptians, you will be like a god, and Aaron will be your prophet. You tell Aaron what to say, and he'll do the talking. Now, when he first called Moses, he didn't say anything about Aaron because Aaron was not part of the deal. But Moses won't go because he's afraid, and God being with him is not enough. So he says, okay, what do you need 
to get you off this mountain. Aaron, he's a good talker, so he'll do the talking, but I'm not going to talk to Aaron because I didn't call Aaron. I'm going to talk to you, and you're still going to do the job. But now you've added in a person that wasn't in the original plan. Going somewhere. So stay with me. Now, we know the story. He goes to Pharaoh. He performs you know, all these wonders and signs. Pharaoh's heart gets hardened time and time again until finally the angel of the Lord slays the firstborn of all the Egyptians. And Pharaoh gives in, lets the people go. Moses leaves them out. God tells them where to go takes him to Mount Sinai. He performs signs and wonders. There's a pillar of fire from heaven that leaves them at night so they can see where they're going. And in the daytime, it's a cloudy, it's a pillar of a cloud that touches from sky to earth and leads them. And wherever the pillar goes, they follow. It's large enough that this crowd of people in the millions can see it and follow it. You have to understand the Hebrews used to be nomads like Abraham. They traveled with the seasons. They didn't have a kingdom. They moved in tents. They hadn't done that in 400 years, but it was still in them. So they, they, they would plant somewhere, sit there for a while, wait for the seasons to change, and they'd go. Well, that pillar would lead them where, they were, where he wanted them to go because that was their culture. You know, they were traveling people. They were nomadic tribes. Now, go to Numbers. I wish it was this fast getting to uh, <laughs> do this homework. <laughs> go to Numbers chapter 13. Now, we know this one, too. Some of y'all, we should all be past Numbers, shouldn't we? But we should have read Numbers 13 by now. Go to Numbers 13. See, I got one main point tonight, so I'm going to get all the scripture out of the way. Verse 1, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Send men that they may search the land of Canaan. Now, God has promised to give them the land of Canaan. Everything that happened in Exodus was for this moment. We're going to go into Canaan. We're going to take the land, build the kingdom there. Now we're going to build a kingdom. He, the Lord told Moses to send the spies in. I want you to keep that in mind. It was not Moses' idea. It was the Lord's idea to send the spies in. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Send thou men that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel of every tribe of their fathers. So that's why it was 12 spies, because it was 12 tribes. One man from each tribe. Now go to verse 31. 12 spies go in. Of those 12 spies, two of them we know, Joshua and Caleb. The other 10, we don't care about. Their names are given, but... They messed it up for everybody. They go into the land, and their job as spies was not to see if they could take it. That's not what he sent them in there for. He sent them in there to strategize how to take it. Not if they could take it, because God already told them, I'm giving it to you. But just because God gives you something doesn't mean you don't need a strategy. Sometimes we think that if God promised me this, I can just sit on my butt, and it'll come to me. That's not true. God will give you a strategy to receive what he's promised you. This was part of the strategy. Go in, see what the land looks like. Where are the mountains? Where are the hills? What kind of cities do they live in? Because we got to take these cities. I need to know, as a military strategist, I got to know how to take this city versus that one. If they live in 
walled cities, you, you attack walled cities differently than you would a colony of tents, right? It's not whether we can, it's how we're gonna go about taking it. That's why he sent them in there. But when they come out, 10 of them say this, verse 31, but the men that went up with them said, we be not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report, underline evil. The Bible always calls unbelief evil. The Bible says that an evil heart is a heart that is one that is an unbelief. Anytime you get into unbelief, the Bible calls that evil. Because unbelief means you have demoted the word of God. God said the land is yours. You say we can't have it. That's evil. They brought up an evil report. They didn't say the land was bad. They brought back clusters of grapes and milk and honey and showed how good the land was. So when it says an evil report of the land, it's not saying they, they thought the land was bad. They agreed that the land is good. The evil in their report was we can't take it. The land through which we have gone to search is a land that eateth up the inhabitants. It's so big. And all the people that we saw in there are men of great stature. And we're tiny. We're like grasshoppers in our own sight. Now, verse, now chapter 14, go down to verse 6. Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land. They rent their clothes. Renting your clothes was a gesture of sorrow or a great... Uh, it was an emotional response. It was a symbol that I am displeased. It was a great sign of displeasure. The, the evil report these other guys are bringing, Joshua and Caleb was cool because they didn't take it personally. They were offended for the Lord. That's why they rent their clothes. And you'll hear that in what they say. They spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search, it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. Now watch what they say next. Only rebel not against the Lord, neither fear the people, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them. And watch this next line. And the Lord is with us. Fear them not. Now there are three times in all that I've read, now that I got through all that, how much time did I use up to do that? Okay, I got time. Three times, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. The Lord says the same thing to all three of them. I'll be with you. Now, I need some help. And one of my helpers walked out the room. So I'm going to keep on talking until he walks back. <laughs> he says, I'll be with you. Now watch this. I want you to notice this. The attitude of faith comes in layers. And sometimes when we're talking about building faith, we can, we can be, we used to use this analogy of faith as a muscle. My dad always taught it that way. Pastor Dan has taught it that way. I've taught it that way. It's a beautiful picture of how to think of building your faith, like a muscle. You exercise it daily, you feed it right, and it gets stronger. That's how faith grows, that's how muscle grows, right? But you know, you got more than one muscle in your body. Now, the way you build a muscle is the same principle. You put enough pressure on it 
for a long enough period of time to break the muscles down to encourage growth. And then you let it rest and it grows. That's how you do all muscle building. But the type of exercise you do for one muscle is different than another. So if I'm doing bicep curls, my legs aren't benefiting from that. If I'm doing squats, my arms aren't benefiting from that. You're not working one exercise for all the muscles. The principle is the same, but the movement is different depending on the muscle I'm trying to build. Everybody with me on that? Anybody confused about that? Okay, good. God called Moses, a man who was raised by Egyptian in Egyptian culture. Egyptian culture weighed heavily on him because that's how he was raised. But the key thing about Egyptian culture was that it was all based on works. See, they worshiped demonic spirits in Egypt. All the Egyptian gods you read about and hear about, those were the names of demonic spirits. And those spirits would manifest and do things to mesmerize the people. This is Old Testament. These spirits were free to do what they wanted. Jesus hadn't come on the earth yet. They were not under the foot of man at this point. And they were objects of worship by the Egyptians. The first few miracles that Moses performed, the Red Sea and the blood, the turning the rod into snakes, the Egyptian magicians did the exact same thing. Remember that? They did the same thing by their gods. Which, so, so Pharaoh was like, well, see, look. Now, God's snake ate the Egyptian snake to prove his dominance. But they still turned their rods into snakes. But as things went on, there was a point where the Egyptian gods ran out of power. There was things God could do the Egyptian gods couldn't do. And when God smote the firstborn of all the Egyptians, the Egyptian gods couldn't do anything to save them. So Moses grew up in a culture that needed to see something in order to believe in a god. After 400 years of slavery, that's what happens to you. Now, Quan, come up here, please, sir. I'm going to use you. You're going to learn something. I'm going to use you. And actually, you know what? This is going to work out even better. You stand right here. No, stand there and face that way. And I need somebody short. <laughs> Sister dear, will you help me out? Come up here. <laughs> I call her Sister dear. I need somebody where the height difference is obvious and the animosity is real. Now, I'm just playing. <laughs> now, for the sake of this analogy, you're going to be the devil. <laughs> and you are going to be the children of Israel. Or you're going to be Pharaoh. You're going to be children of Israel. You're going to be a Christian. You're going to be the devil. You're going to represent oppression. And you are somebody being oppressed. All right? Y'all let me know how I rolled. You ain't got to do nothing. Just stand there. I wanted a height difference. I was going to call Michaela, but I think her hair is too high. <laughs> I needed a height difference because you got to look bigger than the person you're oppressing. That's why I picked you. All right. Now, the children of Israel have a problem. All they've seen was their oppression. 400 years. They know the strength of their oppressor. Moses included. Because when Moses meets God for the first time, he tells God how big Pharaoh is. He says, who am I to go to Pharaoh? I know how big Pharaoh is. 
You're just a plant on fire. So God has to do some stuff to convince Moses that he's more than just a talking plant. Because Moses is used to being impressed by the power of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's gods. And many of us, when we're under oppression, it's because we're, uh, we're impressed by Pharaoh's gods. We, we, we make the oppression big, okay? Now, if you start praying, come up here, Tristan. Come here, young man. Just do it. Just obey. You'll be blessed. Come up here. That's all right. If you don't do it, I'm going to call somebody else. <laughs> Stand right here. Stand in front of her. Now you are her help. See that look you're making? You are going to fight this battle. No. <laughs> He's like, I'm not fighting my daddy. You said the other day, don't ever fight your daddy. I ain't fighting my daddy. Now let me ask you a question and give me your honest answer. Based on your help that has arrived, you've been praying, <laughs> how confident are you that you can take down this oppression? On a scale from one to 10, where would you put your confidence? Zero. <laughs> no confidence whatsoever for the young man. Why? Why? Yeah, somebody raise your hand. Because of what she sees, right? But what she sees, now she don't know nothing about him. Maybe he got to move. He might have a weapon on him or something. I don't know. It's starting to be young these days. She's not impressed by the scale of his ability compared to her oppressor. Well, God knew Moses had that same problem, which is why he took him through all those changes. Because Moses' faith was in what he could see. He had faith. Hebrews 11 says he had faith. It's not that Moses didn't have faith. But Moses had a different type of faith than Abraham and Joshua. Now you can sit down. Thank you, sir. <laughs> I'm supposed to thank you. You're thanking me. Now, come up here, Jalen. Now, I'm going to ask the same question. Now, <laughs> one to ten, your confidence level, she embraces her deliverer. <laughs> one to ten, your confidence level is a ten. Same oppression, same level of oppression. But her deliverer is now impressive to her. She can't even see the oppressor no more when he's standing in the way. All she can see is the deliverer. Okay? Thank you. Y'all can sit down. I want you to see that. No, don't clap yet. I ain't done. I ain't got much time. Don't stop clapping. Stop clapping. So look. Freedom from oppression. The faith, when you want to build the type of faith that free, name an oppression. Somebody raise your hand and name something that can, that can oppress you. Debt. What else? Drugs, what else? Sickness, abusive spouse. You rolling them out, man. <laughs> so you financial problems, health problems, drug problems, spousal problems, any kind of problem. Those are oppressions. Okay? 
those are oppression. Moses was called to free a people from oppression with the faith that Moses had. The way you develop faith to be free from oppression is by magnifying the scale of the deliverer. Okay? The bigger you make the deliverer, that's how you build your faith for freedom from oppression. God had to become bigger than the Egyptian gods to Moses so that he would be able to free them from oppression. Okay? We all like that way that sounds. But that's not the highest level of faith. Because Moses' faith is not the kind of faith that builds. Moses' faith is the kind of faith that frees. I can get you out of Egypt by magnifying God, which is important. I can get you out of Egypt, but I can't get you into the promised land. I can get you from under oppression, but I can't build with that kind of faith. And here's why. Because when you are going to build something, all you see is nothing. Now, God called Abraham. We, talked, we read about Abraham. God gave Abraham his word and nothing else. He didn't perform not one miracle. He didn't do anything magical or special. Abraham took God at his word. Because God had to build something from nothing with Abraham. So the faith that creates, just like in Genesis chapter 1, relies only on the word of God. And sometimes, when we're trying to build our faith muscle, we don't know which muscle we're working. If you're dealing with an oppression, you need to be magnifying your deliverer. Now, both processes require you to get into the word because faith comes by hearing the word. But the word that magnifies your deliverer builds your faith for freedom because it reduces the size of your oppressor. And so if you have, take for instance, you got a financial need. You want scriptures that glorify the wealth of the Lord and his generosity towards his people. You want to feed on that. You don't want to think about the issue. You don't focus on the issue. You focus on magnifying your God. When God first came to Moses, Moses said, well, Pharaoh is the most powerful dude on earth. He said, and you don't even have a name. He said, how will I be able to go up stand from in front of him? And then he said, I'm not eloquent. The people that talk to, to the Pharaoh, these are the, the best politicians in the world. These are eloquent speakers. He said, I can't do that. But every time God told Moses, I'll be with you, that wasn't enough for Moses. Moses needed something physical until God was big enough. That was Moses' hang-up in the wilderness. But when they get to the promised land, Joshua and Caleb say, if God is with us, we can take it. They saw the same giants the other 10 guys saw. They saw the same giants. They didn't see anything different in the physical. All they had was the word of God. All the miracles that God had done up to that point, he had already done. They had already eaten the manna. They had already seen the Red Sea part. 
That didn't stop the other children of Israel from complaining. They crossed the Red Sea and got on the other side and started complaining again. They got hungry, they complained. They got thirsty, they complained. So spectacle alone will not cause you to become a builder of kingdom. Spectacle alone will not do it. When God wants to build a kingdom, he needs people whose faith is in his word alone. Because he's going to take you somewhere with nothing to look at. So when you want to become a kingdom builder, when God wants to build something through you, level the next level above spectacle is word. I have to know you well enough. You see, I didn't have time to read it all, because I have to read the whole book to you to, to point out all the places where you see the heart of God is he wants his people to know him. In the beginning, they don't know him at all. They haven't talked to him in 400 years. They don't know him. They know the Egyptian God. So he's willing to do tricks for them. He could have blinked his eyes, and they could have just woke up in the promised land. But they wouldn't have known him through that. He didn't have to do all those things to get them out. He said, I will harden the heart of Pharaoh so that they know who I am. Because he knows the things that God did in the wilderness and in Egypt to Pharaoh and the Egyptians was not for the sake of the Egyptians. The same way the first time he did the thing with the staff, it wasn't for the Egyptians. It was for Moses because he needed his people to understand his power because that's all that would move them. And that's why whenever they faced a need, they would start complaining again because it looked like their God didn't have enough power to solve this problem. And you can always tell when a person is still in oppression mode by how quickly they complain when they have a new problem. They need to be re-impressed by God all over again. Okay, you parted the Red Sea, but now we're hungry. You leave us out here to die? So then he has to re-impress them all over again. So they wake up and there's manna all over the ground. Then they get thirsty. Well, you left us out here to die of thirst? So then he got to produce water out of a rock. And what happens is they get into this quid pro quo relationship with God. You are only my God when you prove yourself to me. Because, see, the demonic spirits, that's what they had to do. So they didn't have real power. So they had to, they get forgotten about. God said, I don't, I'm not going to have that relationship with you forever. He said, I want a people that knows me. So when I say do something, that's all they need. That's why Joshua and Caleb were the only ones that got to go in from that generation. Because out of everybody in that generation, Moses included, they didn't take Egypt with them. Moses led them out, but he never got Egypt out of his system. He never got Egypt out of his system. He spent 40 days in the presence and the fire of God on top of Mount Sinai. Because he needed the spectacle to lead these people. Part of his, it wasn't that he didn't love God, but part of his allegiance to God was how impressed he was by him. But God didn't want to have to do that forever. He wanted a man that he could just say, because when he went to Abraham, he said Abraham was old, had no kids. His wife was old, couldn't have kids. 
And he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Abraham said, okay. He showed him the stars. He could see the stars anyway. The stars weren't new to Abraham. He showed him the sand. He could see the sand anyway. All he did was attach the word of God to that image. He didn't fly him into space above the earth and rotate him in some kind of a miraculous spectacle. He said, look up at the stars. He said, your seed will be like that. That's all, that's all Abraham needed. Moses, that wouldn't have worked for Abraham. I mean, that wouldn't have worked for Moses. And a lot of times when we're dealing with oppression, we become so focused on the oppressor that we need our God to become bigger. And God understands that. But once you're free, the next level is not to go back and require God to be bigger again. The next level is by your word alone. Your word alone. When you want to see a mature Christian, find the one who the word of God is enough. The word of God is enough. Because Moses represents the mentality of the slave fighting against oppression. Joshua and Caleb represent the mentality of the king going to build something out of nothing. And if we always stay spiritually in the oppression state where the government's going to, going, going to pieces, we got problems. My marriage is going to pieces, we got problems. My finances are going to pieces, we got problems. You stay in that mindset and you're always trying to make God prove himself. You're going to get to a point where God's going to say, I'm not doing that no more. I said what I said. You either believe me or you don't. You ever had your kid ask you too many questions and you get to that line where you go, I said what I said. That's why Moses couldn't go into the promised land. Because God said what he said. And it wasn't enough. You have to be careful. The muscle for freedom from oppression is magnify God. But you got to know when you're free. Sometimes you're free, but you act like you're not. So you keep coming back to God for more miracles. And you can't build anything in miracle mode. It doesn't mean miraculous isn't important. Jesus performed miracles. Miracles are supposed to be a part of our experience as believers, but as ministry to the unbeliever. Not as proof to us that God is real. And that's where we mess up. Jesus performed miracles not to keep himself in the right frame of mind, but because he was facing people who didn't know God. And they would, know, they would only be attracted to him after a display of his power. Plus, he loved them. Sickness is against his will, so he destroyed sickness wherever he encountered it. But if you weren't sick, you had to hang out with Jesus by choice. That's why he didn't have a big church. He could fill a stadium with sick people and broke people, and people with problems. But he could only fill an upper room after the crucifixion, because those people didn't have problems. They were loyal to his word. Remember what Peter said? He said, where are we going to go? You have the word of life. That's where his loyalty was to. His loyalty was to the word that came forth out of Jesus, not the miracles. And Jesus had done miracles for Peter. More than once. He healed his mother-in-law. He filled his boat with fish after a long night of not catching anything. 
that's not why Peter stuck with him. He said, it's your word. He said, I ain't going nowhere because of your word. And faith that's not grounded in the word will never build. It will not build if it's not grounded in the word of God alone. Because you're going to go into your promised land, and it's going to be giants in there. And it's going to be big, and it ain't going to have your, your, your buildings in it and your cities in it. It's going to be big and empty. And the Lord is going to tell you this is your land. And that's all he's going to say. That's all he's going to say. And sometimes we try to go from one miracle to the next to keep ourselves interested in who our God is. And he will not do that but for so long. Now, when you're a baby, you get a lot more miracles because you're getting to know what he's willing to do and what he's able to do. But after a while, if you don't lock in on that word, you will never build because you don't build with babies. Don't build with babies. You build with the mature. And the mature faith person, because faith is a lifestyle, right? We live by faith. The mature faith person is matured by how easily they attach to the word of God. Lord, you said it, so that's what it is. And we're struggling in that area, some of us. Some of us are growing. But you have to be mindful of that. Because you might go through what we call a dry phase, where you don't see a whole lot of miraculous. Will your God disappear then? That's the question you got to ask yourself. You can't build a kingdom in the promised land on Moses' faith. It's not that Moses didn't have faith. It's no disrespect to Moses. But his faith was based on the magnification of God over his oppression. And your faith begins there, but it can't end there. Because what happens when he tells, okay, I'm done, because I know my, my, my alarm went off, I'm done. But watch this. When he, took, when he took them out of Egypt, they didn't do anything. He did all the work. He killed all the Egyptians. He sank all the army of the Egyptians. He did everything. He just said, just walk. That's all they had to do. But when they got to the promised land, he said, now you go kill them giants. When you're raising your kids, those of you that have children that you've raised, when you first, the first time they got their shoes tied, you tied them. The first time they rode a bike, you held on to it. Or you put training wheels on it. But after a while, you tell them, now you do it. I ain't doing that no more. Because if they're ever going to build anything, they got to be able to do what they saw you do for them, for themselves. Doesn't mean you've abandoned them. It doesn't mean you've left them. But at some point, you want them to go do something else. And they got to come back to you to get their shoes tied when they're 23. You can't go no further than that. And sometimes we think we're dependent on God because we're overly dependent on miracles. I'm trying to stop. I'm going to just stop. I'm going to just stop. We're overly dependent on miracles. We're not dependent on God. Because when he says, you go kill the giant, nope. If you kill him for me, I'll give you the glory. And we call that faith. Got to be careful. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.